Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 13, The New Look, Part 2. As for joy, I labeled it aesthetic experience and talked much about it under that name and said it was very valuable. But it came very seldom, and when it came, it didn't amount to much. Those early days of the new look were on the whole happy ones. Very gradually, the sky changed. There came to be more unhappiness and anxiety in my own life. And Barfield was living through that whole year of youth when life ached like an aching tooth. Our generation, the generation of the returned soldiers, began to pass. Oxford was full of new faces. Freshmen began to make historical allowances for our warped point of view. The problem of one's career loomed larger and grimmer. It was then that a really dreadful thing, dreadful to me, happened. First Harwood, still without changing his expression, and then Barfield embraced the doctrines of Steiner and became anthroposophists. I was hideously shocked. Everything that I had labored so hard to expel from my own life seemed to have flared up and met me in my best friends. Not only my best friends, but those whom I would have thought safest, the one so immovable, the other brought up in a free-thinking family and so immune from all superstition that he had hardly heard of Christianity itself until he went to school. The gospel first broke on Barfield in the form of a dictated list of parables peculiar to St. Matthew. Not only in my seeming safest friends, but at a moment when we all had most need to stand together. And as I came to learn, so far as I ever have learned, what Steiner thought, my horror turned into disgust and resentment. For here, apparently, were all the abominations, none more abominable than those which had once attracted me. Here were gods, spirits, afterlife and pre-existence, initiates, occult knowledge, meditation. Why, damn it, it's medieval, I exclaimed, for I still had all the chronological snobbery of my period and used the names of earlier periods as terms of abuse. Here was everything which the new look had been designed to exclude, everything that might lead one off the main road into those dark places where men wallow on the floor and scream that they are being dragged down into hell. Of course, it was all arrant nonsense. There was no danger of my being taken in. But then, the loneliness, the sense of being deserted. Naturally, I attributed to my friends the same desires which, had I become an anthroposophist, would have been operative in me. I thought they were falling under that ravenous, salt-lust for the occult. I now see that, from the very first, all the evidence was against this. They were not that sort. Nor does anthroposophy, as far as I can see, cater for that sort. There is a difficulty, and, to me, a reassuring Germanic dullness about it, which would soon deter those who were looking for thrills. Nor have I ever seen that it had a deleterious effect on the character of those who embraced it. I have once known it to have a very good one. I say this not because I ever came within a hundred miles of accepting the thing myself, 
but in common fairness, and also as a tardy amends for the many hard, unjust, and bitter things I once said about it to my friends. For Barfield's conversion to anthroposophy marked the beginning of what I can only describe as the great war between him and me. It was never, thank God, a quarrel, though it could have become one in a moment if he had used to me anything like the violence I allowed myself to him. But it was an almost incessant disputation, sometimes by letter and sometimes face to face, which lasted for years. And this great war was one of the turning points in my life. Barfield never made me an anthroposophist, but his counterattacks destroyed forever two elements in my own thought. In the first place, he made short work of what I have called my chronological snobbery, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom? Where? And how conclusively? Or did it merely die away, as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period, and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. In the second place, he convinced me that the positions we had hitherto held left no room for any satisfactory theory of knowledge. We had been, in the technical sense of the term, realists. That is, we accepted as rock-bottom reality the universe revealed by the senses. But at the same time, we continued to make for certain phenomena of consciousness all the claims that really went with a theistic or idealistic view. We maintained that abstract thought, if obedient to logical rules, gave indisputable truth, that our moral judgment was valid, and our aesthetic experience not merely pleasing, but valuable. The view was, I think, common at the time. It runs through Bridges' Testament of Beauty the work of Gilbert Murray, and Lord Russell's Worship of a Free Man. Barfield convinced me that it was inconsistent. If thought were a purely subjective event, these claims for it would have to be abandoned. If one kept, as rock-bottom reality, the universe of the senses, aided by instruments and coordinated so as to form science, then one would have to go much further, as many have since gone, and adopt a behavioristic theory of logic, ethics, and aesthetics. But such a theory was, and is, unbelievable to me. I am using the word unbelievable, which many use to mean improbable or even undesirable, in a quite literal sense. I mean that the act of believing what the behaviorist believes is one that my mind simply will not perform. I cannot force my thought into that shape any more than I can scratch my ear with my big toe, or pour wine out of a bottle into the cavity at the base of that same bottle. It is as final as a physical impossibility. I was therefore compelled to give up realism. I had been trying to defend it ever since I began reading philosophy. Partly, no doubt, this was mere cussedness. Idealism was then the dominant philosophy at Oxford, and I was by nature against government but partly, too, 
Realism satisfied an emotional need. I wanted nature to be quite independent of our observation. Something other, indifferent, self-existing. This went with the Jenkinian zest for rubbing one's nose in the mere quiddity. But now, it seemed to me, I had to give that up. Unless I were to accept an unbelievable alternative, I must admit that mind was no late-come epiphenomenon, that the whole universe was, in the last resort, mental, that our logic was participation in a cosmic logos. It is astonishing, at this time of day, that I could regard this position as something quite distinct from theism. I suspect there was some willful blindness. But there were in those days all sorts of blankets, insulators, and insurances which enabled one to get all the conveniences of theism without believing in God. The English Hegelians, writers like T.H. Green, Bradley, and Bosanquet, then mighty names, dealt in precisely such wares. The absolute mind, better still, the absolute, was impersonal, or it knew itself, but not us, only in us. And it was so absolute that it wasn't really much more like a mind than anything else. And anyway, the more muddled one got about it, and the more contradictions one committed, the more this proved that our discursive thought moved only on the level of appearance. And reality must be somewhere else. And where else but, of course, in the absolute. There, not here, was the fuller splendor behind the sensuous curtain. The emotion that went with all this was certainly religious. But this was a religion that cost nothing. We could talk religiously about the absolute, but there was no danger of its doing anything about us. It was there. Safely and immovably there. It would never come here. Never, to be blunt, make a nuisance of itself. This quasi-religion was all a one-way street, all eros, as Dr. Nigren would say, steaming up, but no agape darting down. There was nothing to fear, better still, nothing to obey. Yet there was one really wholesome element in it. The absolute was there, and that there contained the reconciliation of all contraries, the transcendence of all finitude the hidden glory which was the only perfectly real thing there is. In fact, it had much of the quality of heaven, but it was a heaven none of us could ever get to, for we are appearances. To be there is, by definition, not to be we. All who embrace such a philosophy live, like Dante's virtuous pagans, in desire without hope, or like Spinoza, they so love their God as to be unable even to wish that he should love them in return. I should be very sorry not to have passed through that experience. I think it is more religious than many experiences that have been called Christian. What I learn from the idealists, and still most strongly hold, is this maxim. It is more important that heaven should exist than that any of us should reach it. And so the great angler played his fish, and I never dreamed that the hook was in my tongue. But two great advances had been made. Bergson had showed me necessary existence, 
and from idealism, I had come one step nearer to understanding the words, We give thanks to thee for thy great glory. The Norse gods had given me the first hint of it. But then I didn't believe in them. And I did believe, so far as one can believe an unding in the absolute. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>